Hey everybody, we just completed the lecture of the Jewish Ashkafa. It's actually very, very relevant to everybody's life, especially if you are on the path of doing tshuva or want to do it or are doing it. Because every single day we pray in the morning in Bikot HaShachal, Hashem don't bring us to uh, sin, to temptation, to uh, embarrassment. We pray to Hashem and uh, the reality is there's constant temptation. How do we deal with the temptation? How do we deal with the tests? And in fact, what is the perfect solution that could help us overcome all of the temptation that is in front of us in business, in life, in marriage, and simply just being there in front of a computer has become one of the worst temptations. So tune in, listen, enjoy, learn, and uh, let me know uh, what you think after you shared the lecture with everybody else. Call to Bukha We're uh, starting a new week, continuing our series of the Jewish Ashkafa, the Jewish ideology. Tonight's year will be for the Ilui Nishmat of Gershom Moshe Ben Wava Hershman. And Leavdil uh, also for the Refuah Shlema for Yosef Ben Levana, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sarah Bat Anat. Avi Mori David Ben Nesria, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and all of Am Israel and all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch our Shurim, to continue to learn, continue developing themselves, to become better servants of Hashem, to become better people, to make the world a better place. So we have our series, Baruch Hashem, of the Jewish Ashkafa. For all of you that have asked before, I'll remind you again. In regards to uh, sponsoring the lectures, anyone that wants to sponsor the lectures and be mentioned in the beginning or not mentioned, it's up to you. Whether you want to do it for the Ilui Nishmat of somebody uh, or for Refuah you can go to our website, beezrathashem.org, B-E-E-Z-R-A-T-H-A-S-H-E-M.org, uh, and you could uh, choose one of the options over there. Uh, which sponsorship you want, or if you want to just donate, or you want to go to the uh, store, buy the USBs, whatever you want to do. There's many options available over there. Also, there is uh, the BH Torah website that we have uh, to uh, watch some of the videos over there. And, of course, anyone that wants to help us uh, market the movie, the new film that we have, Gehenom, uh film that we have, is uh, more than welcome uh, to do so by going to the uh, website gehenom.com or gehenom.org. And uh, you could help us uh, by uh, contributing to that campaign as well. Anyone that contributes to that particular campaign will enter a uh, raffle uh, to win a Talit Gadol or a whole set of uh, USBs that we have. It's a uh, $600 value. Uh, we've already had several winners, Baruch Hashem. And uh, anyone that uh, is contributing there, regardless of the dollar amount, is entering that raffle. So you win either way. So... With that being said, we have, Baruch Hashem, our uh, series at hand. We, uh, we've been learning from the Chazonish for the last couple of years in regards to Emunah and Bitachon, in regards to uh, simply uh, learning what the Jewish ideology is, which uh, now more than ever people are uh, you know, in need 
of understanding what is a Jew actually supposed to think like? How we suppose, What is our ideology? I mean, many people are familiar with some of the mitzvot, whether it's Shabbat or kosher or, or different things that we do. But the reality is that there's a lot more to Judaism than just uh, making some of the mitzvot. A person needs to know uh, what are they supposed to think like. You know, and I see that uh, whether it's in the uh, people that are Baalei Tshuva, that are just starting out now or converting, or to people that have been you know, seriously religious their whole life, very few people are familiar with the Jewish ideology like they're supposed to. Uh, hence the reason why there are so many things out there that uh, you see, you know, certain Jews behaving in an inappropriate way or, uh, you know, are simply uh, in a, uh, a bad place altogether. So, of course, the Jewish ideology is not something that is of opinion. This is simply what our sages have taught us throughout all of the generations. Of course, everything is built on the written and the oral Torah. And that also brings me up to the point when people are, uh, you know, comparing, let's say, the teachings that we have in our different lectures versus, let's say, some of the uh, others that are out there, whether it's some of the uh, heretics that are out there that we've called out or the different idol worshippers, the Israelites, the missionaries, all of these different people. One of the things that I've always, uh, you know, uh, found uh, very, uh, a very good tool to uh, simply uh, show people the, the proof of the Torah itself has nothing to do with me is simply if you take... Any five lectures from this series or any of the other series that we've done over the years, and you compare it to literally all of the lectures of these missionaries, all of the lectures of the Israelites, simply compare it to all of the different talks they've had, all of the different videos they've had, you compare, you compile all of them to one, you'll learn more in five lectures of ours than you will from them. And the reason why is because their, their teachings most of the time either are comprised of hatred, opinion, or simply worst, worthless material. Whereas the teachings that we have here are based on both the written and the oral Torah. And without the oral Torah, you're never going to understand the written Torah. And what's, what happens here is that each and every single week, each and every single lecture that we have, we're bringing much more material to you so you could actually have a better understanding of the value of this holy Torah, both the written and the oral, simply because it'll put you in a situation where you understand this is real wisdom. It's not an opinion. It's not something uh, somebody just conjured up a bunch of information. But most importantly, this is something I need in my life rather than just want or it's good to have. Because the, the teachings of the sages are going to put you in a position where you're going on the right path and you feel like you're on the right path rather than just giving you a certain idea, a certain idea that Farrakhan has or a certain idea that the Israelites had or a certain idea that uh, uh, Manus or Dro or, any, or Ephraim or all these other people have. That is an individual idea, maybe right, maybe wrong, but nonetheless, it's not going to give you a foundation for your life. It's not going to be constructive for your life, for your marriage, for your, uh, you know, your work, for your, your business altogether, simply for you to know how to live life. And that's the beauty of the Torah itself is that all of the wisdoms that exist are inside the Torah. And that's why we delve into it. And that's why there's literally endless amount of material that we're bringing each and every single week because the Torah is endless. It's an endless ocean. And when a person just harps on one particular point, all they're doing is shortchanging themselves and their lives uh, with all of the material that's available for them to live by. So the Chazonish has been telling us over these last couple of weeks specifically about how important it is to be precise when it comes to the uh, following of the law itself, 
uh, as uh, not just uh, for you to fulfill the mitzvot, but rather to fix yourself. Because although it's good for a person to learn Musar uh, in order to fix their character traits, if they don't actually uh, learn Musar alongside the law itself, the then they're going to practice this zealousness or this stringencies at the wrong time. At the same token, if a person learns the law without learning Musar, they're going to be very cold, very mean, and uh, quite frankly, they're not going to follow the law itself because part of the law is to become a better quality human being in accordance to what God defines the better human being to be rather than what society does because as you've seen, society is not exactly on its way up. So the beautiful part here is that he's telling us that when you, the more precise you are with the details of the law, the more you're actually fixing yourself. And in fact, he even says that it, this is something that most people don't know, that the more precise you are, the more particular you are about practicing the law itself, the, bo- the more you're actually going to heal some of these wounds that you've created throughout your life, whether it's your lusts, your different addictions, the, uh, the different uh, things that people have that have ruined their life. Many people have developed different habits whether it's uh, sexual habits or eating habits or all types of other types of addictions or simply just bad behavior. You're quick to anger, you're stingy, arrogant, all types of things that simply ruin a person's life. Because if your wife or your husband is constantly complaining about something, there's something to it. If your uh, coworkers, your boss, like our customers are constantly complaining about something, there's something to it. You can't just assume the whole world is wrong about you and you're the only one that understands you. If they're complaining that you're too angry, they're complaining that you're too stingy, they're complaining that uh, you're simply careless or you're cold, there's obviously something to it and a person that wants to better their life has to look for a solution. What the Chazonish has been teaching us over these last few weeks specifically is that the more particular you are about practicing the law, the more you're going to be able to heal these wounds, the more you're going to be able to heal these different imperfections that have developed throughout your life, and in fact, going to put yourself on a much better path. Now, the, uh, when people think of fixing themselves, typically they think of learning Musar, the learning character trait development, which of course is right, but again, in itself, it's simply not enough. And a lot of people, when they first start learning some of our lectures, they first start learning, let's say, some Musar lectures, they become very zealous, but without them knowing when you're allowed to be zealous, when you're allowed to be uh, 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 proud, when you're, you're obligated to be humble, when you're forbidden for being humble, when you're obligated to love, when you're forbidden from loving, all types of things, without knowing the details of the law, a person is simply going to be a, a disaster. Uh, in the name of the uh, uh, of the Torah, according to them. So one of the things that uh, he's giving us in last week's lecture is a couple of examples of how a person needs to make sure that while they're fulfilling the law, while they're fulfilling the Torah itself, while they're living life in the right path, they have to make sure that they don't put themselves in front of a test. They don't tempt themselves because many times... If a uh, person compares their life to, let's say, work, or they compare themselves to, to business, they'll conjure up the idea that if I've worked on myself and I've worked, on, let's say, on my anger, I've worked on my stinginess, uh, perhaps I should test myself to see if I'm no longer going to get angry. And they'll put themselves in front of a situation where somebody is, uh, you know, that they know 
is intentionally going to uh, upset them, is intentionally going to mock them, and just to see how they behave. Or if somebody, for example, used to be an adulterer, or used to be some someone that's simply a, a, a promiscuous person, they're going to think, well, listen, I'm no longer promiscuous because I've worked on myself. Let me put myself in front of this situation again. Let me go back to the nightclub. Let me go back to the, uh, uh, the different places that uh, I used to do those things. And that is going to tell me if I really passed the test or not. The Chazuni says this is the worst thing you can possibly do. In fact, you're not allowed to do such a thing because it's not worthwhile for a person to search for tests in order to accustom themselves uh, to a corrector character trait. Why is this the case? This is the part of where he gets into this week. Why, why is it a terrible idea to, uh, to tempt yourself? And in fact, what is the solution? Well, how do I know if I'm actually better now than I used to be? Because to learn things from a book is, you know, and, and learn it theoretically is fantastic. But how do I know if I pass? Because if I developed, let's say, a new technology, Okay, in order for me to bring it to market, if I'm a wise person, if I'm a person that wants to succeed, I'm going to test this product out. I'm going to see, I'm going to give it to a, uh, do with something like a soft launch, or perhaps give it to a few friends and, and family to see if this product works. What, what kind of feedback do they give me? If I have anything that I want to bring to market and I want to bring it to the public, technically, logically, I would want to test it. So why wouldn't the same logic apply to myself? If I used to be a very angry person, a very arrogant person, a very bad person, and now I've worked on myself. I've read all these books. I've changed my life. I've uh, developed uh, better habits. So now why can't I bring myself back up to the old neighborhood? Why can't I bring myself back to the projects, bring myself back to the uh, schoolyard, bring myself back to the old town and in, in front of the old relationships and just see if I pass or not? Why can't I call my ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend and meet up with them for coffee and tell them about all the wonderful changes I've implemented without falling into sin again. Why can't I use that same logic? Because again, here he's saying it's not only a bad idea, it's actually a sin to do such a thing, to put yourself in such a position. So we see here that there's a very big difference between something that's allowed, something that's allowed but not recommended, and then something that's forbidden. Here he's telling you it's forbidden. It's not that it's not it's allowed but not recommended, but rather it's forbidden to put yourself in those circumstances. So if that's the case, what do I need to do in order to know that I'm actually a better person? I mean, obviously the whole world is not in front of me, my old... Uh, uh, self is not going to talk to me and, and tell me, listen, you're better now. And that's, uh, I have to obviously know for sure. How do I actually know that I am better for sure? So first and foremost, he gives us a few examples uh, further to uh, let us know different places in the oral Torah and that's obviously coming and learning from the Rin Torah of different things that the Torah has taught us of not only that it's uh, you shouldn't do it, but it's forbidden to do it. And uh, as far as tempting yourself. And he says, Here it says, the Nazarite, the person that took upon themselves the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, stringency of not... Uh, uh, not being with a, uh, um, not uh, drinking wine, not uh, uh, doing, uh, you know, making their hair much longer. This is uh, Nazarite uh, mitzvah, is not something that's common anymore today, but it was something that was common back then. This Nazarite 
is not permitted to enter a vineyard in order to awaken his desire for grapes, which are forbidden to him to eat, even if he is doing this in order to overcome his evil inclination. This is what the Chazoni says. So if this guy is taking on himself that for a period of three months or a year or whatever amount of time, he's not going to drink wine, then since he's now forbidden, he's taking this on himself, since he's now forbidden from drinking wine, he's not even allowed to go to a vineyard where there's a bunch of grapes because he's forbidden from eating the grapes either. Yeah, but yeah, but maybe I just want to go see all these grapes. They're beautiful. And perhaps, uh, you know, I can control myself not to eat them. You know, what's the problem? Torah tells us you're not allowed to even go there. Where does it say so? There's actually 10 places in the uh, Talmud that it actually says so. In the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 13a, Masechet Psachim, page 40b, there's five times in Masechet Abu Dazarah and multiple other places where it says, go around, go around, they say to the Nazarite, and do not come close to the vineyard. Here, the Torah is in essence teaching us that this Nazarite is told by his community, run away from this place. This is a place for you, because you've taken this uh, uh, obligation on yourself, for you, it is forbidden. Everybody else that's not a Nazarite can go. But you're not allowed to go. Why? You're not allowed to put yourself in front of a test. But what if I, I, I think it's a good idea to put a test? Learn from David the Melech, who, uh, who says in uh, chapter 26, verse number 2, it says, uh, David the Melech says to Hashem, Examine me, Hashem, and test me. Scrutinize my intellect and my heart. This is David the Melech in His Holiness, Asking Hashem to test him. First and foremost, why would David Melech ask Hashem to test him? Why would David Melech ask Hashem to test him? And number two, why shouldn't we follow in his footsteps? So the first reason is that David Melech wanted to be the fourth pillar of the Merkava, the fourth one that carries the Shekhinah. You have Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and David wanted to be the fourth one, just like we say that the, uh, our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, in our blessings, and our teachings, and so on, it constantly mentions in the Torah, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and David Melech, in all of his dedication to Hashem and his Torah, wanted to be the fourth one, and said, why, why am I not the fourth one? Hashem says, because I didn't test you the way I tested Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Avraham had ten different tests, whether it's a uh, getting thrown into the fire by Nebuchadnezzar, you know, by uh, either going into the fire or worshiping an idol, Avram went into the fire. Or it's the uh, test, uh, uh, you know, in, at the time of uh, Sarah. Sarah Imenu, when, when Avram came back from Akedat Yitzchak, from uh, almost sacrificing his son, which in itself was uh, one of the uh, big tests that Avram had, when he came back, he saw that his wife died. Now, of course, logically, a person would think that if I just passed this big test, I was willing to sacrifice my son. I should get like a, I don't know, like a big, uh, you know, surprise welcome home party, a whole uh, uh, theatrics and, and bells and whistles. That's what a person would think logically. But Hashem tells us multiple times in the Torah, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. He doesn't think like us. And when he tested Avraham, he tested him literally the most difficult things you can possibly imagine. And as soon as he came back from the Akedah, from nearly sacrificing his son, what does he find out? He finds his wife, his dear wife, for many years, uh, nearly a century. His wife, uh, dead. 
So this is obviously a test in itself. Yitzchak also was tested. He was tested with a uh, uh, having being dakid, being the person that's uh, nearly uh, sacrificed by his father. He was tested with multiple things. Yaakov, his whole life was full of tests. Whether it was the test of running away from Esav, or the test of living with Lavan for twenty years, or it's the test of his daughter Dina being raped, or it's the test of his uh, son Yosef missing for twenty-two years, not knowing if he's dead or he's alive. Yaakov literally lived a life of tests, lived a life of tests, and David Melech says, okay, if they had all these tests, test me also, test me also, and we want to emulate David at all times, accept this, why? David Melech asked Hashem to, to, uh, to be tested, Hashem says, I will test you, the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 107 says, Hashem told David Melech, I will test you, and I'll even tell you when I'm going to test you, and he tested them, and he failed. And he failed. Now, of course, again, David failed in his level. This is not something that can be compared to us as far as the test, the miniature test that Hashem gives us in comparison. But needless to say, the sages learned from this. Don't ask to be tested. Needless to say, don't put yourself in front of a test. If you have an old relationship and it's you're now in a new relationship, don't call your old relationship. If you have a, uh, you're, you know, one of these people that simply can't help themselves, you, uh, you're constantly stealing. Don't get a job where there's a lot of possessions at your, uh, you know, in front of you. If you're one of these people that is constantly looking at things that are inappropriate on the internet or in real life and so on, don't put yourself in a situation where you are alone for an extended period of time, especially at night, because lest you end up opening one of these websites that make you lose your eternity. The point being is, don't put yourself into a test, even if you think that you will pass it. Even if you think that you will pass it. Because even the Nazarite, the Gemara says in Masechet Shabbat, the Nazarite that wants to test himself, the sages tell him, yell at him, say, no, 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 go away, go away, go away. Why? Why go away? If he, uh, if he is a, um, he's obviously holy enough to take this test on, to put this added stringency on himself, the sages say, go away to the Nazir. Now, the same Gemara in Masechet Shabbat gives us multiple uh, examples of different things that a person is not allowed to test themselves in. And one of the examples that the Gemara gives here in page 13 is the issue of Nida. And when a wife is Nida and uh, uh, one of the uh, people comes to the rabbis and asks, is the uh, a wife allowed to uh, sleep in the same bed as our husband when she's Nida. Now, of course, we know in Judaism there's something called family purity, and the uh, husband and the wife are not allowed to be together the moment that the wife has her period. She has to, uh, the period has to stop, which is usually uh, four or five days. Sometimes it's less, but she cannot wait less than four days, even if she only bleeds for a couple of days. And then after that, she has to count seven clean days. Now, after she completes those seven clean days she has to go to the mikveh and then they're allowed to be together again but during that time that they're forbidden from being with each other which is which could be literally nearly half the month 11 12 days or so now this is a time where they're not allowed to hold hands they're not allowed to kiss they're not allowed to eat from the same plate and they're also not even allowed to sleep in the same bed this is why orthodox jewish homes have the 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 bed of the husband and wife are usually two uh, small beds that are put together. When they're allowed to be together, the beds are combined. When they're not, the beds are separated. 
They don't sleep in separate rooms. That's uh, not allowed. You need to sleep in the same room as your husband. You need to sleep in the same room as your wife. We're not uh, uh, people that kick out the wife just because of the of the law. The law itself tells us that this is a time where you get spiritually connected without the uh, the intimacy. But needless to say. The, uh, there's a very, very big emphasis on the fact that you're not allowed to sleep in the same bed. Now, a person that's uh, new to the religion will say, listen, I mean, I control myself. I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. I control myself. If I know if I'm not allowed to be with my husband, if I know I'm not allowed to be with my uh, wife, then I'm just not going to be with them. What's the big deal? Why can't I sleep in my big kink-sized bed together with my wife? Why can't I do it? The Torah tells us, don't do it because you're putting yourself in a test. You're putting yourself in a test that you don't really know for sure you'll be able to pass. As much as you think you have confidence in yourself, as much as you think that you uh, you can do it, it's not allowed. So much so that the sages said that uh, to uh, to put yourself in a test is literally putting your life at risk. Why? Because if you do fail, if you do fail and you guys end up becoming intimate, that's called a karet sin. Karet sin means that you're cutting yourself from your relationship with Hashem. Spiritually, you're cutting yourself from Hashem. And the punishment for it is extraordinary. The punishment for a, 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 a Jewish man to be with his wife, or a, a, even if he's not married, he's a, a, a somebody else that is a, a ritually impure, is karet. The magnitude of the uh, crime is very, very significant in the eyes of God. So much so that this person will literally have to suffer a long time in Geinom for such a thing. So the sages are telling us here that you're not allowed to sleep in the same bed as your, uh, uh, in the same bed as your husband uh, while you are Nida. Now one woman says, listen, I, uh, I have a husband and uh, you know, my husband uh, thinks that he can pass the test. And why, uh, you know, why is it that uh, he can't sleep? Because technically, she's using, obviously, uh, a logical argument where she says, listen, we know that we're not allowed to eat milk and meat. We're not allowed to eat milk and meat. But there is Shammai, one of the sages, says that if you have one person has uh, chicken and another person has cheese, they're allowed to eat on the same table. They're allowed to eat on the same table. So if, you know, obviously, they're not allowed to eat each other's food, but they're allowed to eat on the same table, even though you're not allowed to eat the two things together. So if that's allowed, because you know that they could control themselves, they're both on a table, why can't you know two people also control themselves? So the sages teach, no, no, no. This is not if they, uh, uh, if they uh, know each other. This is, o- this is only spoken about people that don't know each other. They're in a restaurant, let's say there's a single table, and you have one person eating a steak, the other person is eating cheese, then, uh, uh, then it's allowed because you're not going to... Uh, assume that the uh, one stranger is just going to take the food of another person and you can't compare the two why because the magnitude of falling for this crime is much more severe where if let's say for example somebody fails and eats the food of the other person that's forbidden to him that's a crime that's against god but it's not nowhere near as much as a man being with his wife and needless to say a man being with another woman even if she's not his wife when she is nida now, there was a, another woman that came into the Bet Midrash crying out, crying out and saying, I can't believe it, my husband learned Torah, he did mitzvot, he did all the good things, but he died young. How could this be? And the sages didn't know the whole story and they didn't have an answer for her. And this woman made a whole big ruckus about the whole thing. How could it be? My husband followed the Torah, my husband followed the mitzvot, he was a scholar, he was good. How could God take him away from me? 
So of course, this caused a big uh, commotion, not only in the Bet Midrash, but in heaven, because it looks like some, something's wrong with the system. Hashem sent Eliyahu Navi. That's what the Gemara says in Masechet Shabbat, page 13b. Hashem sent Eliyahu Navi. And Eliyahu Navi approached this woman and he says, my daughter, your husband, he, uh, were you, was he ever intimate with you when you were in Nida? She says, no, chas v'shalom. He was never intimate with me when we were in Nida. He says, were you sleeping in the same bed? She says, yes, but my husband was so stringent and, and, and so uh, scrupulous with the law that he would never even touch me when, uh, when I'm Nida. He simply sa- you know, slept on his side and I slept on my side. Eliyahu Navi. Eliyahu the prophet says, Baruch Hashem, praises Hashem that he killed your husband for violating the decrees of the, and the teachings of the sages that warned us against such things. Why? Your husband, although he learned Torah, although he did mitzvot, apparently he ignored the warnings of the sages not to put himself in front of a risk. Not to put himself in front of a risk. He was too arrogant about his own strength. And that's why God t- took him. Thank God that he took him. Why thank God that he took him? He took him before he sinned. Because if he would have left him uh, uh, alive for long enough, eventually your husband would have sinned and would have had to go to Gainom for a very, very long time, and you too the same. So it's better that he die than, uh, obviously, uh, um, than sin. Now you would say, wait, but why didn't he just send him some private messenger? Because you're not entitled to getting a private messenger. Moses is not going to come down to every single person to be his personal prophet. Hashem gives you the law, you learn the law, and you fulfill it. You ignore the law, Hashem talks to you in different ways, and sometimes those ways are very painful. So here we see that the uh, Torah tells us some very, very serious uh, information about staying away from the sin. And the Chazonish continues and it says... Coming close to a place of sin is in itself a sin. As our sages taught us, make a fence around my fence. Now, this is a very important part because it explains the, uh, the misunderstanding that most people have about the role of the Jewish sages. Most people, when they see the, uh, the oral law, they see the mitzvot, they see the shulchan aruch, they see all of these different books, and, you know, especially when they're coming from a world of heresy and they're coming from a world of confusion, from a world of idolatry, they have no idea what's going on here. Wait, isn't the Torah only the five books of Moses and then you have the prophets and the writings? What is this oral law for? Why do I need to listen to a bunch of old men, a bunch of sages from 2,000 years ago? Why can't I just simply look at what it says in the Torah and just conjure up things myself and figure it out myself? First and foremost, it's because you will not understand you will understand the written Torah without the oral Torah. Because the, written, the oral Torah is not just laws, it's also a lot of other parts that without them, the written Torah would not be legible. First of all, you know, one of the things is Nikud. Nikud is the vowel system. The vowel system in Judaism is not like English where you have letters, A-E-I-O-U and sometimes Y. But rather, the vowel system in Judaism is the Nikud, the little dots and dashes. This is part of the oral Torah. Secondly, the words that are in the uh, um, written Torah are not common language. So in order for us to understand what they are, we need the oral Torah to tell us what they are. For example, we have a very uh, big mitzvah, a very uh, big obligation that Avraham Avinu got, which is to uh, do a brit milah, do a circumcision and cut what's called the orla. Now the orla, today we know what it is, it's the foreskin of the male member, but... 
without the oral Torah telling us that the orla is the foreskin of the male member, the average person will say, well, cut it off? Okay, maybe it's cutting off the nails. Maybe it's cutting off some hair. Maybe it's cutting off some nails. Uh, maybe it's cutting off a little, you know, a little thing over here in the ear, the little extra that some people have. Maybe it's, uh, uh, you know, why would anybody in their right mind think that it's the foreskin? Why would anybody think such a thing? Second, another pl- example is that the Torah obligates us to put on tefillin, the phylacteries. Now, if a person puts on the phylacteries, if a Jew puts on the phylacteries six days a week, which, you know, the one day we don't do is on Shabbat, we don't put on uh, the, uh, the tefillin, and we also don't put it on during holidays. So, uh, Torah tells us that you have to put one on your arm and one in your head. But what do you put on your arm? What, how do you know what the phylacteries are? How do you know what goes into them? How do you know what color they are? What if I want them to be pink? What if I want them to be round? What if I want them to be just a watch? How do I know what they are? The oral law explains all of that to us. It tells us that the uh, tefillin are square, they're black, and we have found literally tefillin from a couple thousand years ago, from the time of Yechezkel the prophet, which are literally exactly the same thing as what we have today, not only a testament to the written Torah and what it says, but even more so a testament to the oral Torah because we literally have the same tefillin in every single community, whether it's the Sephardic community, the Ashkenazi community, the Hasidic community, the community from uh, Yemen, or any community that has ever had, we all have the same exact tefillin since the beginning of time. So the beautiful part here is that you have a mitzvah where the Torah tells us you have to, every man has to put it on, and if he doesn't, the Gemarayim Masechet uh, Rosh Hashanah, page 17a says, a Jew that does not put on the tefillin each day has no share of the world to come. They go to the seventh level of Gehenom and they never come out because this is considered a sin with their body. So there's a lot on the line here for putting on tefillin. So if so much is on the line that if a person does it, they can go to heaven. And if they don't do it, it's eternal damnation. They go to Ganom forever. They go to hell forever. Obviously, a lot on the line. So I have to know what this is. Without the oral Torah, it's simply impossible for me to know what it is. And there's literally over a thousand different laws that pertain to the tefillin. It's not just about putting any square box on your arm and on your head. It's They have to have particular words in them. They have to be made from specific animals, specific skin, specific size, a uh, specific color. There's a lot of details to it. So this all comes in the oral Torah. Now, the, uh, the misunderstanding that people have in regards to the sages, they think that the sages just came up with a bunch of laws. And they're just adding and adding and adding, and they still think that people are adding laws today. There's no new laws today. There's only application of the old laws into the world today, meaning that you have already a pre-existing foundation, but you have to learn how to take that foundation, those existing laws, and apply it to the world today. Because, for example, you know, back at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, when we got the Torah, both the written and the oral Torah, we didn't have cars. We didn't have electricity. Today we do. So how do we apply the laws of 3,300 years ago to today? Well, back then, Torah told us you're not allowed to light fire on Shabbat. So the sages uh, uh, decreed that uh, electricity is a form of fire. So you're not allowed to use uh, electricity on Shabbat, meaning that whatever is on before Shabbat has to stay on the whole time of Shabbat. Or whatever is off has to stay off. You can't turn on and off like you can't turn on and off your phone, can't turn on and off all types of things. You have to leave them as they are unless you have what's called a timer, which automatically turns it on and off on its own. It's not an action by you per se. 
So there are different things that the Torah has already in the Torah. What the sages of today, the, the poskim of today do, is they show us how to apply this existing law, this pre-existing law, into the modern world today. Anytime something new comes up, whether it's the, uh, uh, you know, the, the cars or electricity, or it's uh, uh, different things that are out there today. Now, another thing that the Torah tells us is what the Chazonish is bringing up here is make a fence around my fence. This is also mentioned many times in the Torah. It's a verse in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, verse 31, where Hashem tells, uh, tells us, He tells Moshe Rabbeinu to tell Am Yisrael, and you shall separate the children of Israel from their Tum'ah. So the sages explain that this is an allusion from the, uh, the previous mitzvah that was said in Leviticus, that uh, you shall safeguard my charge. What does it mean to safeguard my charge? That you are obligated, you the sages are obligated to preserve my law. What does it mean preserve my law? You're, you're having a, uh, extra laws? Exactly. This is the Torah permission for the sages to put a fence around the law that already exists. There's a biblical law and then there's the rabbinical law. What is the rabbinical law? What is just a, whatever they feel like it? The opposite. It's when the sages dedicate their entire life to the Torah and to its people, they know exactly what difficulties we have. They know exactly what uh, circumstances that, that are going on in the community because people come with difficulties. People come with questions. People come with problems. They're aware of everything that's going on out there. So when people come and they tell them, listen, there's a constant issue of uh, this in the community. So the sages have the permission of the Torah, and in fact, the obligation of the Torah to put a fence around the fence, or a fence around the law itself. Meaning that if, let's say, for example, they know that people are not very familiar with all of the details of the law of Shabbat, and sometimes they forget that, uh, you know, they, they'll write something. You're not allowed to write on Shabbat. It's one of the 39 restrictions that the Torah says. You're not allowed to write on Shabbat. You're not allowed to build. You're not allowed to destroy. You're not allowed to uh, rip things. You know, there are different things that you're, you're forbidden from doing, but there are certain times that you're allowed to do some of these things. So it's a, it depends on whether you benefit from it or not. The point being is that the sages have they know exactly where the community stands as far as their spiritual status how much they know how much they don't know and what the sages saw is that since there are times where people that are still learning or simply are clueless they'll sometimes you know see a pen and they'll write something quickly because they have a thought or they have some new thought and they want to write something and they figure listen i'm not writing a whole story i'm not writing a whole book i'll only write a couple of words so the sages said, since people are not really understanding that there's not, you're not allowed to write even two letters, you're not allowed to write. So what do they do? They added a fence. What's the fence? You're not even allowed to touch the pen or pencil. It's considered what's called muktze. Muktze means it's you have to put it aside. You cannot even touch it throughout the entire Shabbat. So why why this added law? Because if you have this pen in front of you and you know you're not allowed to write. Then you'll feel like, oh, you know what, let me just pick it up, I'll put it somewhere else. And without even realizing it, subconsciously you could just write something. Now, although this seems far-fetched to some people, this does happen. So what did they say? You're not even allowed to touch the pen. Not even allowed to touch the pen. So this is one of the many examples that you can give as far as the sages fulfilling the Torah by adding a law to the Torah 
with the permission of a Torah, in order to protect the people, protect them from making the much more heinous crime of writing on Shabbat. So this is one of the things that the Gemara in Masechet Moed Katan, page 5a, says that uh, make a fence around my fence. This is a permission from God to Am Yisrael sages to add a fence around his fence, meaning to protect the law itself. So all of this, says the Chazonish, as far as you know, staying away from the uh, from temptation, staying away from the sin, and in fact even adding a fence and staying away from it even further than what you would typically need to. This is all included in what the sages taught in the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 107a. What did the Gemara in page 107a say? This also has to do with what David Melech uh, went through, where the Gemara says that Leolam al Yavi Adam atzmo sayon. The Rabbi Uda teaches in the name of, uh, of Rav, one of the uh, great sages of, of that time and history, that, that a person should never bring himself to a test. He should never place himself in a circumstance in which he will be tempted to sin. And where do we learn that from? David Melech, he says. Where David Melech asked to be tested, brought himself to a test, and he stumbled, succumbing to temptation. So here we see that the uh, testing, putting yourself in such a circumstance is not only a bad idea, but it's actually forbidden. It's actually forbidden. Now, the Chazonish continues, and he says that a person should never bring upon themselves a test, meaning that even if it's for the purpose to get of getting used to being tested in order to ascend to a higher spiritual level of serving Hashem, he's still forbidden from doing so. Meaning, even if, let's say, for example, a person has the common uh, thought that a Baal Tshuva has, someone that repented, someone that has changed their life, they left the life of being in a casino every day, they left the life of being uh, with uh, many women, they left the life of sin, and they have now changed themselves. They're already a year, two, three, four years into it. They're observing Shabbat. They're observing mitzvot. She's modest now. Everything is good. And they figure, you know what? Uh, maybe I should uh, see how strong I really am. And in fact, test myself in order to show Hashem how much I'm dedicated to Him. And pass the test. And this is actually a very dangerous test that Baalet Shuvah put themselves into. Where they figure... You know what? If I go to the club and I don't sin, if I go to the casino and I don't sin, that means that I'm doing good. And this is a mitzvah from the Satan. This is what we call a mitzvah from the Yetzirah, from the Satan. He's telling you to go test yourself when in reality you're forbidden from doing so. But the person will say, wait a minute, but doesn't the Torah itself... Uh, teach us that uh, a Baal Tshuva has to, uh, ha, you know, ha, only knows if he's a Baal Tshuva after he passes the same exact test, and they'll even give you a source. What's the source? The Gemara in Masechet Yoma. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma, page 86b, says, What are the circumstances that define a true Baal Tshuva, a true penitent? Amar the same Rav Yuda that says, Never put yourself in a test. Amar Yuda. 
פעם ראשונה או שנייה, וניצל ממנה. says that where an opportunity to sin comes his way, a first time and a second time, and he saved from it on both cases, meaning he doesn't sin. And even more so, more details where he says, this is indicating that, what does it mean uh, one time and two times? It says where he's uh, the same woman at the same time in the same place, meaning he sinned one time with uh, some, uh, some girl, he had some type of promiscuous relationship with some woman, and he figures, you know what, now I'm about tshuva, now I'm clean, I'm not doing that stuff anymore, so you know what, I know she goes every Thursday night to this place, I'm going to go, I'm going to see her, I'm going to say hello, and nothing else. And that's going to fulfill what Rabbi Yehuda says, that I have the opportunity to sin, but I'm not sinning. Or vice versa, a girl, she had a boyfriend, she knows that if she says hello to the guy, he's simply going to start drooling. And she knows she has an opportunity to sin with them, but she says, no, I'm just going to say hello and not sin. Is it not going to fulfill, show that I'm real Baal Tshuva? No. It shows that you're sinning by putting yourself in front of a test. Why? Because you're misunderstanding the teaching itself. This is why we need the Allah itself. What is the actual psak? What is the actual law itself that the sages get from it? And you go and you find it in the Rambam. The Rambam took the Gemara and extrapolated the, the details of the law from it. And in Chot Shuvah, chapter 2, the first Alakha, he says, what constitutes a complete tshuva, complete repentance? A person who confronts the same situation in which he sinned when he has the potential to commit the sin again and nevertheless abstains and does not commit it because of his tshuva alone and not because of fear or the lack of strength. For example, a person engaged in a forbidden sexual relations with a woman. Afterwards, they met in privacy in the same country while his love for her and physical vigor still persisted and nevertheless he abstained and did not transgress. This is a complete Baal Tshuva. So now a person says, wait, this does not support what Rabbi Yudah just said that I have an opportunity to go sin with this woman and I don't sin? No. Why? Because the Rambam is not telling you to go search out this woman. What he's telling you is what Rabbi Yudah tried to explain, which is that you have a situation where this woman is in front of you. You're not going to search her out. You're not going to some nightclub. You're not going to the game. You're not going to her house. You're not calling her. You're not doing any of those things. This is just as life would be. Hashem runs the world. He wants to test you. He wants to bring the woman to you and see if you're going to sin or not. You're not bringing the sin on yourself. You're not bringing the opportunity on yourself. It's, this is something that happened naturally by the divine hand. So if it happened naturally and you passed the test, whether it's with the girl or with something else, then you're completing, you, you've completed your tshuva. You are considered a real Baal tshuva. But if you went out there and searched out the sin, then not only have you not completed your tshuva, you are sadly mistaken of what you, where you stand altogether. So that's one of the things that it's, you know, shows an example of why it's important to know not only what the sages are teaching, but also what was Paskant Alakhan, really to try to fully understand the whole idea and not just learn from one particular place. Because as the Gemara in the Yerushalmi, Masechet Pe'ah says that the Torah is rich in one place and poor in another place, meaning that in one place you have a certain subject matter mentioned with, let's say, one or two lines discussing this. 
But in another place, you could have five or ten lines. In another place, there's three or four lines. In another place, there is 50 lines. So in some places, it's poor. There's only very few details. In other places, there's a lot of information. Now, you can't just learn it from the place where there's a lot of information because the place that has only one line could be the one point that you need to complete the full understanding of the uh, you know the, the the big bulk of information and the same uh, the opposite you can't just learn from that one line and think that no that one line is just as much as the uh, the full page over there no when we learn Torah we have to learn the the uh, the, the subject at hand in a, in a in a full manner we have to learn it from all of the different sources to get a full uh, uh, knowledge of the situation and one of the places that we saw this is most relevant in our generation is the teachings about punishment very few people are familiar with the uh, the judgment in Gehenom, the sentence, how long it is, and a lot of people simply are so uh, ignorant about it that they actually think that no matter what crime you make, the maximum punishment that anyone could ever get is 12 months. Now this, aside from the fact that it literally negates one of the 13 principles of faith, and it's actually putting a person in a, in a position where they just in its just that sin alone puts them in a place where they don't have a share of the world to come because you're negating the entire Torah, but also it turns God into a foolish, dumb God. Why? Because if it doesn't matter what you keep, and in so many words, it doesn't matter how many sins you make, the maximum sentence that you're ever going to get is 12 months, then why even do mitzvot? Because... Everyone's going to sin somewhere. There's a, there's a Shlomo Melech teaches. There's no such thing as a righteous person who doesn't sin. Everybody sins to some extent. So if everyone sins anyway, and everyone goes according to the warped logic of the heretics, everyone goes to a maximum sentence of 12 months, why keep anything? I'm going to sin anyway. Even if I try my best, I'm going to fall somewhere. So why even bother keeping anything since either way I'm going there for 12 months? So this turns the whole Torah upside down. And in fact, the Ramban says in his uh, Shara Gmul that it turns God into an evil God. Why? Because a God that judges a person that, let's say, murdered one person and he gives him the same judgment as a person that stole $5. Or he judges a person that murdered one person the same way as he judges a person that uh, killed $6 million. Uh, if he judges them the same, that's an evil God. So by actually saying that everyone gets the same sentence, the same maximum sentence, obviously is wrong to say the least, but it also turns God into an evil God because you cannot say that an idol worshiper and someone that, let's say, lied a few times are in the same caliber. And you can't say, yeah, well, the guy that uh, is an idol worshiper, he gets uh, 12 months, but the guy that lied, he gets uh, two minutes. Sure, that's fine if they both only made one sin. But what if the guy that lied also uh, murdered a few people? Does he still only get, uh, you know, a couple of minutes? Oh, no, Danny, you you, uh, you put him in a caliber of uh, 12, uh, 12 months. Okay, but what if, uh, let's say he also, uh, you know, let's say he robbed people for a living for the last 20 years, and as a result of his uh, robbing people and the Ponzi schemes and stealing and everything else, he also ruined the lives of many, many families, and a few of them ended up committing suicide. He still gets the 12 months, so no matter, so that's it, he hits the cap, there's no more for him. Of course, the more a person thinks, the more they realize it's not fathomable for a divine ethical law to have such a maximum statement. And this is actually one of the things that heretics love people to believe because it makes everyone look as if, you know what, you're all righteous, you're all uh, the same level of righteousness, you're all on the same level of wickedness, we're all on the same playing field, which is completely and absolutely false. 
Why? If somebody dedicates their life to learning Torah day and night, they're dedicating themselves to becoming a better person, they're dedicating themselves to serving Hashem day and night, all day, all night they're serving Hashem, and they make one small sin, and this other person did not dedicate even a minute of their life to God, all their life they're stealing, all their life they're killing, all their life they're doing every crime they could possibly have, they're an adulterer, they're a rapist, they're a pedophile, they're everything under the sun, and you're telling me that they're both going to get the same judgment? That's obviously not an ethical law. So this is one of the things that the heretics love to teach because they want everyone to like them. They want everyone to like the teacher, so they tell them we're all on the same playing field, no matter what. This is absolutely false. So a person that learns the Torah will easily understand why these types of heretical arguments are simply not plausible and they have no share of the Torah, so much so that the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin in Perik says that people that say such things have no share of the world to come, meaning that even if you put aside all of their crimes, whatever they raped and killed and robbed and stole, whatever it is, even if you put all of those aside, just having such a belief, that in itself puts them in a genom forever. Why? Because they're considered an apikos, a heretic, they're considered somebody that is literally uh, desecrating the Torah and, and, and the God that created it. So here we see that a person that is putting themselves in a situation where they're testing themselves intentionally is in the caliber of a person that is not listening to the sages and not understanding what the role of the sages are and how they're there, not only to educate us, but also to protect us from ourselves. So now a person is uh, says, okay, fine, I'll listen to the sages. I'm not going to put myself in front of that girl. I'm not going to put myself in front of that guy. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where uh, uh, I'm going to uh, be tested. But how do I know where I stand? How do I know where I stand? Because Rabbi Ephraim says that one of the things that a person uh, with uh, the goal of every Baal Tshuva should be, every person that wants to get closer to Hashem should be, is to turn all of their past lusts all of their past forbidden desires into things that they have complete control over complete control over where they know as soon as something like that appears they have complete control over themselves where they know exactly that they have to run away from such a thing so if a person understands that the lust is real the desire is real they're not going to get closer to it saying, no, no, I'm just going to overcome it. No, they're going to know that this caused me to fail in the past. And at any given moment, it could cause me to fail again. So they literally run away from it. They literally run away from it. They're not going to put themselves in a situation where they go to a casino and say, no, I'm not going to play. This is obviously not, uh, not the uh, logic of a, uh, of a smart person. Now, one of the movies that we made as a side note that uh, you know, gives us a, uh, at least an idea of what an ultimate goal should be for a person that is doing tshuva is to get to a point where the Rabbi Akiva taught us of becoming disgusted by our previous sins. Not just being upset about them, but literally getting to a point where a person is disgusted by the sins. The movie that we made was, is called The World of Lies. Highly recommended for people to watch it after you watch this lecture. It's called The World of Lies. It's about 45 minutes or so, where a person could really get a good understanding of where the holy sages got to and where people even today can get to in their own level where they if you work on yourself enough and sanctify yourself enough you can get to a point where some of the past things that you aspired past things that you admired past things that you uh, uh, you've done can literally become disgusting in your eyes 
But how could a beautiful woman become disgusting in your eyes? How could a uh, attractive man become disgusting in your eyes? Very simple. When you understand not only the law itself, but what it gives you and the deep connection that it gives you between you and Hashem, between you and God, and you value that relationship, you have fear of Hashem, you have love of Hashem, that means that the things that forsake that relationship, the things that separate you from Hashem, become disgusting to you. Because you don't want to put everything on the line. It's the same thing for if somebody has a healthy relationship with their spouse. If it's a truly healthy relationship, not just a relationship that's based on lust, or based on money, or based on materialism, or based on good times. It's a true relationship where through thick and thin, this couple is going to make it. This couple is going to love each other. This couple is going to uh, uh, admire each other. This couple is going to support each other. Then that means that if there's ever an opportunity for one of them to, let's say, for example, to see some, somebody else or to see something else like pornography or promiscuity or anything like that, they immediately run away from such a thing. Why? Because... To them, even though their wife may not be next to them, even though their husband may not be next to them, and unfortunately today, statistics show that there are more women that are addicted to pornography than there are even men, which is completely an anomaly throughout history. But nonetheless, this is something that is apparent today. But when a person truly loves their husband, needless to say, when they love Hashem, pornography and just the life of sin becomes repulsive to them. Why? Because even if their spouse is not next to them, they feel like they're betraying that relationship. They feel like they are literally forsaking that relationship because they know that if I see this other woman on the screen, if I see this other man, if I see these beasts doing whatever they're doing, that means that that thought is going to go into my mind. And the next time that I'm going to be with my wife, the next time I will be with my husband, the next time that I'm even going to say hello, to the love of my life, I'm also I'm still going to have that thought of somebody else. Meaning somebody else has acquired a space in my mind that really belongs to my spouse, that really belongs to the love of my life. How could I love such a thing? And it's not just somebody else that it's, let's say, you just uh, learned a new program at work and you know more about Microsoft. No, we're talking about seeing somebody else at a time of complete vulnerability. And when you're in reality... All of that attention, all of that love, all of that affection belongs to the spouse that you have. So when a person truly values their relationship with Hashem, learns Torah, that will lead them to have a much more valuable and much more healthy relationship with their spouse. And that means that they're going to protect their eyes even when and especially when their wife is not there or their husband is not there. But unfortunately today... Many people think that, oh, if my husband is not here, I can still watch. If my, husband, my wife is not here, I can still watch. Well, I'm not hurting him by watching something. No, no, you're destroying him by watching this. A woman that watches pornography is only a matter of time before she cheats on her husband. Why? Because those thoughts require action. And there's no way in the world that the husband can ever meet up to those fantasies that a, a woman sees. Needless to say for men. Needless to say for men. He, say, he says, no, I've been watching it and I don't cheat on my wife. Yet, if you had the opportunity, you will. Why? Because you're already cheating on her mentally. Because you're already not with her mentally. Same thing for women. And unfortunately, people don't understand that whatever they see and they bring into their mind is literally somebody renting a piece of your mind for free. And that is a betrayal not only to Hashem, it's a betrayal to your relationship altogether. So the question is that if I know that 
the person used to have an addiction to pornography, an addiction to promiscuity, an addiction to stealing, an addiction to gambling, an addiction to whatever it is. And now he's working on himself for a period of time. And he wants to know where he stands. But he just learned that he's not allowed to test himself. She's not allowed to test herself. She's not allowed to call her old boyfriend. She's not allowed to, to go to these places. So how do I know where I stand? Says the Chazonish, if so, there is no use for tests except for special circumstances where one finds himself confronted by them, but these are rare occasions that would not serve the practical purpose of accustoming himself to be tested. Meaning that the... Uh, if a person is forbidden from being from testing from putting himself in front of the uh, test himself that means that since you're forbidden from putting yourself in front of the test these tests don't really serve a purpose unless god is putting that test in front of you so how do i know where i stand but a person who observes the mitzvot with all of their stringencies is confronted by tests all the time it is a constant battle for him, and it's easy for him to practice steering up his good inclination in order to overcome the bad inclination. Having so many opportunities to be tested every hour of the day, his ascendancy is assured and his improvement is secured. What is the Chazonis saying here? There is a teaching, it's a concept taught by the sages to Largiz Yitzroatov al Yitzroarav to stir up the good inclination against the evil inclination. What does it mean to stir up the good inclination against the evil inclination? Now, if somebody has ever been in the army, now, if the army is a good army, that means that they do two things. Aside, one is they win, but they don't win because their soldiers are strong, they don't win because their soldiers are a certain color or a certain height or they even have a certain weapon. They win because of preparation. The same concept goes for sports. The winning teams are not always more talented, but they're always better trained. The person that trains the most is more likely to win more often than not. Why? Because if a person trains that means that they're not just simply taking a ball and throw it into the hoop. They're not just taking a ball and just throwing it down the, uh, the field. Or, th- or taking a ball and kicking it into the end zone. And they're not just taking a gun and just shooting into the air. No. What they're doing is that they're mentally preparing themselves for specific circumstances may they happen in real life. So what they'll do is when they train, although they will throw the hoop and they will throw the ball at times and they will shoot into the air at times, that's not the majority of their training. The majority of their training is going to be putting themselves in similar circumstances to what they would be in real life in a real challenge. So the football players will have two sides of the team. They'll have an offense, they'll have a defense, and they'll have an off offense coordinator tell them to run certain players to try to score. They'll have the defense coordinator give the defense team in order to stop them from scoring. And in essence, the goal of both sides is to win. Meaning the defense's number one objective is to stop the offense from scoring. The the, uh, offense's number one objective is to score on the defense and literally demolish them. That's the goal. Whoever does it more successfully 
is obviously going to show that they're more prepared, but even more so, both sides benefit because both sides are getting training in real life circumstances for when the game day actually happens. The same concept goes for people that are playing basketball, any other sport where they're going to train with somebody in front of them defending. They're going to train in real circumstances and literally put themselves in different possibilities that could happen in a real time. Now, the more they train, the more dedicated they are to the practice, the more they'll become prepared come game day. Even more so when it comes to fighting in the army and actually winning a war. The one that actually trains the most, that wakes up at, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, four o'clock in the morning and starts exercising and starts running and starts running drills and starts climbing and starts shooting and starts uh, doing all types of different things in order to be a unit that literally is synchronized. Everyone is thinking the same. Everyone knows where this one goes. Everyone knows that one goes. Everyone knows how to react if there's a bullet that comes, how to react if there's a plane that comes, how to react if there is artillery coming, how to react if there is a, a, a something else coming. Everyone is being presented different possibilities that could happen in real life. Now, that means that unlike the sports team that has a season where they know when their challenge is going to be and they have a series of games one after another, in the Army, it's much more pertinent. Why? Because first and foremost, you may not ever go to battle. You may train for 5, 10, 15 years in the army and never actually see war. But still, you fought a war every single day you were there. And needless to say, if you don't train, you're guaranteed to die. Everything is on the line. If you don't train in the basketball team, worst that could happen to you, you get fired. And you can get, just get a job at, I don't know, at the postal office or something. Or you can get a job as a bank teller or become the next newscaster. That's the worst thing that can happen. But if you're in the army and the commander tells you to wake up, the commander tells you to tie your shoes a certain way, the commander tells you to shave your head, the commander tells you to, you know, to set up your gun, to break up your gun. He's, he's not telling you as a suggestion, as a recommendation. He's telling you have to do this or you're going to cause not only yourself to die if battle actually happens, you'll cause other people to die. Everything is on the line. So the more you prepare, the better, you know, the better you'll be at battle, but even more so, the less you prepare, the more of a liability you become. You're putting everyone on the line. This is the reason why King David, in his army, he, all of his soldiers were tzaddikim. All of them were righteous people. Why? Because David Melech knew that the Torah says that there are specific laws of war. There are specific laws of war that unless the law, the war is commanded by God where we have to go to war. God tells us, go to war with such and such. We're not allowed to just go pick on somebody. So if you've noticed, the Jewish people have never just simply picked on people. In, even in the modern state that's completely secular and many times anti-Torah, generally speaking, the Jewish people are always responding to an attack. They're not actually attacking. Now, of course, the haters, the, the anti-Semites, the, the people that are simply misguided are going to tell you the opposite. They're going to tell you the terrorists and so on. But the truth is the truth. Everyone knows we don't attack. And in fact, even when we are responding to something, we're always warning the opposite side, which is not exactly the greatest idea. But this is one of the uh, uh, generals in the uh, uh, army of, the, of England testified to this, that he's never seen a uh, more ethical army than in history than the Jewish people. Why? Because even when we're responding to a terrorist attack with what we said we'll do, 
we actually send a whole bunch of notes and warnings to that town to make sure that the civilians are moving away and they're not hurt. Now, of course, the Palestinian terrorists and the other different terrorists that are against us will dafka, you know, cause everybody, to force everybody to be there and even use children as shields just so they could uh, uh, have the kid die and then make it seem as if the Israeli soldiers killed them on purpose. But of course, this is the evil of Ishmael. We're talking about normal people that actually understand the truth and see what the truth is. You see that the Jewish people are very, very civil people. They're very ethical. Even when they're not exactly the most uh, uh, righteous according to the Torah, many times when it comes to uh, the, the value of life, we have a completely different perspective than the rest of mankind. Needless to say, people that are Torah observant, the holy people of Am Yisrael, King David, when he would go to war, he knew that there are certain laws in the Torah. Not only are you not allowed to t- attack for no reason, you have to have a commandment from Hashem, but even more so that going to war doesn't mean you just go to war with whoever you want. It has to be with righteous people because if somebody made a sin, even a sin would, would seem small, like talking between putting on your tefillin of the arm and the tefillin of the head. When you put on tefillin of the arm, just so you know, before you actually uh, 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 put on the, uh, the seven wraps and even before you, uh, you pull the string to tighten up the, uh, the tefillin, you have to make the blessing before you do that. You know, many times people make the mistake where they wrap it up or they tighten up the tefillin and then they make the blessing. This is already a mistake. You're supposed to make the blessing before you tighten up that initial uh, tie. After that, you make the blessing and then you put on the, uh, the seven uh, wraps around your arm and your hand, but not on your finger. Then you put on a tefillin of the head. If you're Ashkenazi, you make a second blessing. If you're Sfaradi, you don't make a second blessing. And then you put the tefillin on, you finish the tefillin on your uh, finger. Now, if somebody uh, speaks, whether they're Ashkenazi or Sfaradi, if they put on a tefillin of the arm, and before they put on a tefillin of the head, they spoke, they said hello to somebody, or they said, What's this, uh, what is the market doing? Or whatever they said, that's not relevant to mitzvah of tefillin, that's considered a sin. And David Melech made sure that even if any one of his soldiers made that type of a sin, which in, from our perspective in this year, in this world, seems like, why is it even a sin? This is a sin. David Melech says, if somebody made that sin, he's not allowed to go to war. Which means that his soldiers were literally the most righteous people. Because they wouldn't even make such a small sin. Because he knew that the hand from heaven is the only one that causes us to win the wars or lose the wars. So here we see that when a person is very particular with the law itself, the more particular they are, the more prepared they are for battle. Why? Because you're constantly living the battle. Because you're thinking, wait a minute, it's... The, uh, the past desires, the past lust, or even lust that you didn't have. But you know that there are things that are forbidden. So what is a person supposed to do? To stir up his good inclination to overcome the bad one. Meaning that use your good inclination, the inclination that's there to serve Hashem, and say, wait a minute, I want to serve Hashem. What can get in my way? Oh, if, uh, if, 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 if I'm going to, let's say, work. On the way to work, there's all types of people. If you're in New York, 
lots of people. If you're in Florida, a little less perhaps. If you're in Oklahoma, almost nobody. You know, if you're in different places, you know, you, you know, you can have more, more or less. Question is, how do these people typically look if they're in America, if they're in England, they're in Australia, they're in modern society, they're pretty much walking around naked during the summer and sometimes even during the winter. So that means that I have to either put my head down and just look for Amot, which is, uh, you know, something like a six to eight feet in front of me and not look far away, not look at any, uh, the sides, women, things like that. Why? Because those things could be thoughts, thoughts that are in my head. The next time I pray, the next time I study, the next time I'm with my wife, the next time I'm with my husband, everybody has to start preparing themselves ahead of time because they know they're going to the store. They know they're going to uh, work. They know they're going to uh, an appointment. Even more so, if they're going to an appointment, they think, okay, so hold on a second. There's an appointment. This, uh, this, this customer is a, uh, is a female. Uh, you know, it's, uh, many of the sages said that it's forbidden for a, uh, a Jew to shake the hand of the opposite gender if it's not his wife. So uh, some say that you could be lenient when it comes to the matters of peace, but if you could avoid it, avoid it. Uh, when he got the reward uh, in Israel, uh, for, for his book, Golda Meir, Shem Reshaim Yerkav, wanted to shake his hand and he refused to shake her hand. He wouldn't shake her hand. This is the Prime Minister of Israel. He wouldn't shake her hand. She got offended by it. Let her be offended. Let her be offended. She knew that he's a holy person. He's not going to shake a hand of a woman. But no, she wanted to be offended. The, the, the key is a person that is constantly in business and knows that they're going to meet different people. They have to already have an argument in their mind. What am I going to do if this customer is a woman? doesn't matter if she's attractive, she's old, she's young. It doesn't make a difference. If there's a woman, and I know that, you know, usually people come, they come to a business meeting, they want to shake hands, or they leave, they want to shake hands. What do I do? Do I already prepare my speech of what to say? Do I uh, hold a bunch of things in my hand all the time? A person has to already be prepared for this. Use their good inclination to fight their evil inclination before it happens. Don't figure it out once it's there. Don't be like one of the people that say, listen, Rabbi, you know, I met this customer today and, you know, I don't know, she was really, really friendly and she gave me a hug at the end. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. It's absolutely not okay. That means you didn't prepare. That means you didn't prepare. Same thing when people go, listen, I have an appointment, but I didn't know it's going to be at a restaurant. So is it okay that I was in a non-kosher restaurant? No, it's not okay at all. You're a Jew and you were sitting in a non-kosher restaurant. And it's absolutely not okay. Yeah, but I didn't eat. It doesn't matter that you didn't eat. Of course, it's a worse sin if you ate. But if you didn't eat, it's still a problem. Why? Because anyone else that's walking by, that's a Jew, sees that an observant Jew is sitting inside a non-kosher restaurant. They're either thinking, oh, this guy's a faker. He pretends to be religious, but he's really not. He's eating over here. They don't know that you're not eating. They they assume that they're, you're eating. Non-kosher restaurant. Or, which is a desecration of God's name, or worse yet, they think, oh, since there's an observant Jew here, it must be a kosher place, even though I don't see a kosher sign. And they could end up eating in this place because you're sitting there. So what is a person supposed to do? Think of this ahead of time. How do you think of it ahead of time? Listen, uh, we're going to meet at a uh, restaurant uh, on such and such street. What do you do? One of two options. You could either say, listen, I prefer not to meet at a restaurant. I really want to have, want you to have my uh, uh, my undivided attention. I don't want the food to get in the way, or I want you to have my undivided attention. It's a really serious meeting. I have a really another appointment right after. Or you could simply say, 
let's uh there's another restaurant actually down the street it's much better you don't even have to tell them it's kosher it's much better let's go to this other place and already have a suggestion to your customer to go to someplace else that you are allowed to eat in you have to be prepared ahead of time especially in the world of business many times people compromise the entire Torah for the sake of their business and then they're surprised that their business has no success and has no blessing they get a lot of commissions they get a lot of money but they end up having a lot of bills a lot of everything else and they don't keep anything why your business has no blessing in order for it to have blessing the actual business itself has to be blessed by following the way of Hashem if you're cheating in your business you're taking advantage of people in your business you're you're doing all types of things that are against God for sure you're not going to have blessings even if you're making millions I promise you in the end you're going to lose every single penny and most likely either end up in jail or becoming one of those desecration of Hashem articles showing how Jews are bad but in reality it's just you and a few of your evil friends so a person needs to understand that in order for them to be Torah observant and they have to have the right Jewish ideology the right Jewish ideology means that you have to be prepared for whatever circumstances that could happen ahead of time don't wait for the situation to happen in order for you to react to it already prepared what could potentially happen in this business meeting it could be a potential uh, uh you know immodest person it could be uh, a, a place that's forbidden to me it could be uh, forbidden food it could be forbidden this a lot of different things a person has to prepare has to prepare for these things i remember even when i was not uh the most torah observant person in the world Hashem, i've always eaten kosher and the first time one of my customers simply demanded simply demanded that i uh uh uh, that I come uh, to uh, you know to meet with them. I generally don't like to meet people, not only today, but overall, I don't like meetings. I think meetings are a complete waste of time. But when I was in the business world, sometimes I had no choice. If there was a big enough customer that came from town, in this case, is a whole family came from Texas, uh, really, really good customer, really good person, and uh, he wanted to meet, and he wanted to meet in a uh, in a uh, restaurant. Now I knew I don't eat uh, non-kosher, even though I was not uh, the most observant. I still ate kosher food so what did i do again don't do what i did but what did i do simple i called the restaurant i told them i don't eat your food it's not kosher i need to get kosher food so can i order kosher food from a kosher restaurant and have it delivered to your place and make sure that nobody touches it they said sure why not you have a reservation for 20 people you're going to spend a few thousand dollars here if we don't uh uh charge you for that uh meal we don't really care fine and that's what i did i had literally kosher food delivered to my plate you know on tin foil with a uh, everything covered and i didn't touch any of their utensils any of their plate and all of my non-jewish customers from texas are watching this young guy eating this food that just looks like it's like uh it just came out of uh you know my uh my little uh lunch bag it doesn't look like uh special or anything else like their food and of course conversation started what do you do why why are you eating this food i told him i eat kosher food i'm jewish da, da, da. And you wouldn't believe how much more they respected me as a result of it. You wouldn't believe how much more they valued it. Now, again, according to the law, I did fine, but it's not really ideal. Why? You shouldn't even go into a non-kosher restaurant. You shouldn't even go to a non-kosher restaurant. Now, today I know it. I didn't know it 20 years ago. The point being is, is that instead of looking bad in the eyes of the Gentiles, instead of looking bad in the eyes of people that are not familiar, it was the opposite. They actually valued me and appreciated me and they actually said it multiple of them said and they're all filthy rich listen i looked at you very differently before today 
I said, why? The things I said had nothing to do with what you said. So well, I said a lot of stuff. I talked for a while. I'm a big talker. Like, yeah, yeah, all that stuff is good, but I heard some of that stuff uh, that you said. Oh, it's not that. What you eat. That means you have values. I, could, I couldn't imagine. This is what makes a difference. The fact that I ate a steak from a kosher place instead of your steak that actually looked better than mine. It was 15 times the size and I paid for the whole thing. No, no. You have values. You stand for something. And you wouldn't believe how much appreciation these customers had for me. And Baruch Hashem, we did millions of dollars in transactions and business together over the years. And it was a very, very different relationship from that day on. When a person stands for something, the world around them will appreciate him for it. But if a person tries to be one of these flexible people, accommodates everybody, guess what? No one's going to value you for it. In fact, most of the uh, non-Jewish world that's familiar with Judaism will actually hate you for it. Why? They don't want you to be like them. This is one of the mistakes that people make where they try to assimilate, they try to replicate, they try to accommodate, they try to do everything but what they're supposed to. They try to pretend like they are non-Jews. They try to pretend like they have their culture. So you see a bunch of Jewish guys, little uh, uh, white, Sephardi, Ashkenazi Jewish guys start rapping. It's the most ludicrous thing in the world. This is not your culture. It's not your background. It has nothing to do with you. And they think, no, yeah, all the, uh, all the guys in the rap business will appreciate me. No, they'll always make fun of you. Why? You're the Jewish rapper. It's the same thing as seeing these Jewish basketball players or football players. And of course, everyone's going to mention, yeah, but there's this one guy from the New England Patriots and the one guy from the, this team and from that guy. There's one guy, exactly, one guy. One guy, and usually that person is so assimilated, he himself forgot he's a Jew. The non-Jewish world does not want the Jews to be like them. And in fact, they hate us for it. Everyone that knows anything about the Holocaust, Baruch Hashem, I've read many, many books and watched many documentaries about the Holocaust. One of the things that I've spent a lot, a lot of time on and continue to spend a lot of time on studying. One of the things that surprised many Jewish people during the Holocaust is that the Germans particularly hated, especially Hitler, particularly hated the Jews that assimilated, the Jews that converted to Christianity or Catholicism, the Jews that married Germans, the Jews that married Gentiles, he particularly hated them. Now, of course, he hated all Jews, but he was extra vicious to the ones that assimilated. He actually viewed them as, you know, people that commit treason. He, com he, he literally hated them with a passion much more than he hated everybody else. And that's actually the perception of all Gentiles. Jews that actually assimilate are not viewed favorably. And this is one of the mistakes that happens in society today of people that are not familiar with how beautiful the Torah is, how wonderful it is, how healthy it is, both spiritually and otherwise. And they try to, you know, try to, you know, to be like the Gentiles. They don't realize they're literally bringing disaster on their life. They're bringing disaster on their life. You celebrating Thanksgiving, you celebrating New Year's according to the Gregorian calendar, you uh, celebrating 4th of July, all of these non-Jewish celebrations is not going to make you any more favorable in the eyes of the Gentiles. If anything, they're going to hate you more. Why? History has proven so. History has proven so. Even more so, when a person values the laws and, and the, the uh, holidays of others much more than he does his own, that's in essence a big, big uh, uh, a desecration of God's name because in essence, God gave you all of these beautiful laws 
that protect you, that help you, that bless you, instead of you celebrating them, you're celebrating the rules of others, the rules of man, there's no greater uh, 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 and more shameful act that a person can do against his creator. Now, one of the most important things that the Chazunish is now telling us, that in order for you to fight that inner battle, that inner battle that wants to assimilate, that inner battle that wants to acclimate, that inner battle that wants to just fit in. You know, everybody just wants to fit in, you know, and be like everybody else. I remember myself when we first moved to America 30-something years ago. I was 10 years old, and I didn't really know that much about Judaism. All I knew is that I was Jewish, I knew I was Israeli, I knew I spoke Hebrew, and I knew that I wasn't like anybody else in the class. But I wanted to fit in. I wanted to fit in so bad that, you know, I, I want to learn their sports. I want to learn what they play. I want to learn their language. All I knew was the first three letters of the alphabet. But I wanted to fit in. And as hard as I tried, it never happened. I never fit in. I never became part of the big crew. I never became part. Why? Because I had my own personality. I had my own upbringing. I had my own spine, if you will. And one of the things that, for whatever reason or another, people do is that they lose themselves in order to appease the public, in order to accommodate the public, in order to just fit in. And the last thing that a Jew is supposed to do is to fit in into a non-Jewish society. Because you're literally destroying your own identity that ultimately will be thrown in your face at some point or another. It's never going to help your life. So one of the things that a person can do in order to fight that inner battle that tells you, don't wear your mitpachat on your head, wear a wig so no one notices that you have, you're a Jewish woman that's covering her head because it's a business meeting. You know, it's a uh, business uh, uh, lecture. And you don't want to be the one woman standing out with a kisurosh, with a mitpachat on, wear a wig so no one really notices that you're really a religious Jewish woman. Or better yet, they tell you that, uh, you know, as far as the, uh, the way you speak, the way you, uh, you conduct yourself, conduct yourself like everybody else. This is the worst thing that a person can do. What is a person to do in order to fight this battle? Be even more precise with the law. More precise with the law. Study the law enough to the point where you actually are much more aware of all of the possible pitfalls, all of the possible landmines that, or spiritual minds that are, could be in front of you. That if you go to this meeting, there could be a, uh, a meeting that could be inappropriate for you to be altogether. If, let's say, for example, you're a man and you know that one of the speakers or one of the main keynote speakers is a woman, you're not allowed to be there. You can't listen to a, uh, a, a woman speaker. Why? Because when they're speaking, typically, they are trying to entice you. And this is enticing, is, is a, a female enticing you is forbidden for a Jew. Oh, that's too much. That's too this. You're not understanding. These are laws to protect you from much worse things. These are all different small details that protect you from much worse things. Why? Because if you start acclimating yourself to the point where you're listening to every female spe speaker, then it's going to be much easier for you to listen to even speeches on YouTube that are by a female. And then if it's easy for you to listen to a speech by a female, you'll listen to the news by a female. And if it's easy for you to listen to the news by a female, you'll also listen to a few songs by a female. And if it's easy for you to listen to a song by a female, then before you know it, you may actually even have a date with a female. And before you know it, you may end up making sins with females. And you'll do a lot of different things that come from that one thing that you don't think is such a big deal. All of these fences that the sages instituted 
are to protect you from the bigger thing and you can never even trust yourself enough and have confidence in yourself enough to think nah this pertains to everybody else just not me just not me trust me when i tell you the the uh, the, the sages know you a lot more than you know yourself they know the flaws of man much more than uh, than people think and when the sages told us if you want to protect yourself be more precise and more particular about the law because then you'll know all of the possible pitfalls all of the possible things that can cause you to sin whether the big sin or what's the small sin or the offense or beyond the fence all of those things because the more you're aware of them the more you can start planning for them okay if let's say she comes to shake her hand what do i do if she uh winks at me what do i do if they flirt with me what do i do if uh this if uh, that if, all of these different things have to go into your mind before by the time you show up to this appointment by the time you show up to this meeting by the time you show up to this wedding whatever it is literally you've lived the wedding the wedding the event 50 times now you may think oh no well this makes a really nice this kills my joy let it kill your joy and not kill your eternity the truth is it won't kill your joy but even if it does kill your joy of the event of the whatever let it kill your joy in this world for the period of an hour or two that it's supposed to be enjoyable and not kill your eternity why because the Gemara, aside from teaching us and warning us about all of these horrible things it gives us details details of the other side details of the other side that is not always so pretty like people would like to think as the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah page 17a says Le'aluka shte banot hav hav Aluka is another name for Geinom says to Aluka has two daughters and all day they say give give Geinom hell has two daughters says give give they cry out give give why do they give give it said that the uh, the Gemara says these two daughters are uh saying give give because they say listen they made all these sins it's time for us to take care of them give it to them we're hungry we're hungry they disagree to the law they cared less about the law they care less about the Torah give it to us Genom is hungry meaning that the evil inclination that's constantly causing a person to want to do all the things that's forbidden is also the same one that's in charge of this Genom that says give give I'm hungry look he fell over here he fell over there she fell over here she fell over there come 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 that's one of the things that people don't understand is that the th- these angels these creatures that Hashem created they are zealous for Hashem when they see someone is righteous they love him but when they see someone is wicked they say give give let me let me get at him let me take let me take care of this evil person how in evil ways he wanted evil he created evil he went against my God let me take care of him so the sages literally warn us in countless places anyone that wants to know more details about Gainom can watch the film Gainom the movie it's almost three hours and anyone that watched the full film uh before commenting literally their life changed unfortunately you'll see sometimes people comment before they actually watch the film and sometimes they comment without watching the film 
I make all types of stupid statements and uh, and things like that. But anyone that actually watched the film, you'll see what their comments look like. You see how it changed their life, how they transformed their life. And of course, many people have emailed me. They didn't comment on the film, but they've emailed me. They text me. It literally has transformed both religious and non-religious people's lives once they see the magnitude of going against God. Because when a person thinks, oh, no matter what, everything's going to be okay, like the Christians think, as long as you believe in some idiot that died 2,000 years ago, against his own will, who prayed to a God while claiming to be God, uh, you know, once, you know, they think that if you, as long as you believe in him, you go to heaven. Obviously, there's no more stupidity than that. But nonetheless, when a person understands that when you go against God, you go against his Torah, you go against the sages, there is a ramification. There is a damage that you've created that you will have to pay for. And the damage is not a small little thing. When a person understands what's on the line, then they realize the value of the fence that the sages put around the law itself. Because they realize, wait a minute, if I violated this law, I could be in this horrible place for an unknown amount of time. But if I simply listen to these wise people that have dedicated their entire life to the Torah, to telling us what it is, and in fact to protect me, if I simply listen to what they say, then I'll actually not only not go to this bad place, I'll go to heaven. As the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin in Perek Helek says that the righteous people get 310 worlds. 310 worlds is beyond our comprehension. The reward that a person gets for being righteous is something beyond any level of comprehension a person can get. 310 worlds. And every time that this person caused another person to do tshuva, to do repentance, to, to, to observe the Torah, they also get even more, more world, another 310 worlds. Literally, a person can benefit more from other people that they've enticed to do mitzvot than even from themselves. If a person invested into Kiruv and they donated and they de- dedicated their time and they did whatever they could to get other people to do tshuva, they could literally get thousands of worlds, much more than what they can get for their own acts. But needless to say, even if a person is just righteous on their own, the amount of reward that Hashem has prepared for them is unquantifiable. But just like the measure of Hashem in reward is unquantifiable, the same Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin says the damage, the punishment is also unquantifiable. So this is why our sages wanted to make sure that we know all of these details. And if a person wants to follow the law, they have even more of a inclination to do so. Not only because it's good to do, it's wise to do, it's a nice to do, but it simply saves you from bad. Bad in this world and bad in the next. Now, of course, there are always bonuses that a person can get. Sometimes a person wants to get a uh, more reward even in this world. How does a person get a lot of more reward in this world? Sometimes there's a misteaching that people teach where they say, listen, if you observe Shabbat, Hashem will give you more money. If you observe this, Hashem will give you more of this. That's not necessarily always true. There are many people that observe Shabbat but are still poor. There are many people that observe different mitzvot but still don't have necessarily the financial blessing or whatever they're looking for. Why? Because there's no guarantee that you will get rewarded in this world for the mitzvot that you do. The guarantee is for the eternal world. If a person wants a reward in this world also, Rabbi Vadya teaches that a person has to do mitzvot that are above and beyond what he has to do. 
Meaning, you have to, let's say, give tzedakah. You have to put on tefillin. You have to observe Shabbat. You have to do all of these things. But if you do above and beyond what you have to do, so instead of just giving, let's say, you're obligated to give $10 tzedakah, you give 15 you give 20 you give 1000 you give more than what you have to. For that, Hashem will reward you in this world. You could ask for a reward for that particular mitzvah in this world. Now, there are different things, different opportunities that a person can earn more reward in this world. One of the great things that a person can do to earn more reward in this world is to encourage other people to become religious, to be, encourage other people to observe the Torah. Because you're not obligated to do it. It's good to do it. It's amazing to do it. But you're not obligated to cause other people to become more religious. So when a person invests more money into Kiruv and to publicize Torah that actually helps people do Tshuva, that person is literally giving themselves an opportunity to earn some of the reward also in this world. And this is one of the ways that a person can do so. On the other hand, this is also a place where many times people that do not have the loyalty to the law sometimes fall where they have a organization an organization that uh, supposedly represents torah supposedly represents god but anytime somebody with a lot of money comes to them they forget about sometimes the torah they forget about the law they think about the money so they don't necessarily rebuke the people when they need to they don't really tell the people the truth when they need to where they'll have some secular person uh, come to them and as long as they have a big check in front of them they won't tell the person listen you have to keep shabbat you have to keep uh mishpacha, you have to keep all these things because they're afraid of losing the money but if a person is very particular about the law and about their love of hashem this is even a time they'll be even more particular than any other time one of the extraordinary stories as an example of this is the story of the rabbi ponovich rabbi ponovich was a Ish Kodesh, he built something that literally is a, one of the uh, foundations of the Torah world today. And Rami Ponovich went through some extraordinary difficulties to build the yeshiva that he has, to build the holiness that he built in the world, but it wasn't at a, uh, for free, it wasn't at, uh, without test, let's just say that. There were times there were literally no money to eat, there were times where there was literally, uh, they were, were surviving by a miracle. One of the times that the yeshiva was going through a very, very difficult time, there was literally no food. No food for, the, for, for people. A woman came and, uh, you know, she invited the uh, Rosh Yeshiva, Rami Ponovich, to come and uh, she will donate a uh, substantial amount of money. So the Rami Ponovich went with a couple of people to go meet this rich woman. And this woman... She wrote a sizable check, quarter million dollars, and this is at a time where a quarter million dollars still had its value. Not like a uh, quarter million dollars of today that sometimes you can't even do, uh, you can't even buy a building with it. Uh, but uh, here in America, a quarter million dollars is not even a down payment for a building. But in those days, a quarter million dollars was a substantial amount of money. And uh, she prepared this check and she gave the envelope to the Rav and then she had her hand out to shake his hand. And Rabbi Ponovich tried to get away from this in a respectable way without insulting her. And he had this uh, way about him where he would say, no, we never say goodbye to our, uh, to our partners. You know, we don't uh, uh, shake hands with our partners because we'd like to see them again. Now, of course, this was a polite way to simply tell her that you're a woman, I'm a man, I'm religious, I'm not allowed to, uh, you know, shake your hand. 
This was the nice way of doing it in a way that she should be able to understand. So the woman, nasty woman that she is, said, ah, so my money is good, but shaking my hand is not good. Rabbi Bonovich, without skipping a beat, without skipping a beat, disregarding the fact that there's no food to eat, and this money could not only feed them, they could do a lot of things with this money, quarter million dollars we're talking about, takes, no, 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 ma'am, incorrect. He takes the envelope, he gives it right back to her, he goes, your money is not good either. And he leaves. Leaves. Of course, she's shocked, no one's ever talked to her this way, no one ever gave her back a quarter million dollars. But this is what happens. Some time passed, maybe a few years, the yeshiva again went over different times, good times, bad times. Times were difficult again. Rami Ponovich was, himself would open the envelopes. People would send checks at times. And he opens a check and he sees a check from that same lady from a few years ago for $100,000. Closes the envelope, gives it to his uh, gabai, says, send this money back to this woman. She will never donate to this yeshiva. But Kodarab, we need the money. No, no, no. This yeshiva will never accept a single dollar from this woman. Why? If she doesn't respect our Torah, we want nothing for her. Nothing. Doesn't matter. Hashem will feed us. Hashem will feed us. How many people do you know will stand up for the truth when push comes to shove like this? Not many, unfortunately. But that's why the Rabbi Ponovich is the one that we're mentioning in the story, not every organization in the world when a person is dedicated to the torah these types of tests are everyday business every day there's going to be a test and every day you already are ready for that test before it happened why in your mind you prepared for it if somebody disrespects the torah we don't want anything from them if somebody disrespects the torah we don't want anything from them yeah what if it's a lot of money we don't want anything from them what if it doesn't make a difference we don't want anything from someone disrespect the torah why torah is everything for us hashem comes first hashem comes before everything else hashem and his torah come before everything so when a person prepares themselves for this while it looks very difficult to all the people that are watching it to them it's simply a reflex why i've prepared for this my whole life so this is the beauty that we can learn from not only following the law but also being particular about the law to the extent where you are living it constantly hence the reason why you don't need to test yourself because as the chazoni says when a person is constantly particular about the law they're living the outcomes the possibilities the dangers constantly and because they're living it constantly there's no need for a test because you're constantly in your mind constantly going through the test over and over and over and over again and therefore you are assured that you will succeed if a real test actually comes and when a real test actually comes because you have done it you have passed it you have prepared for it over and over again in your mind as part of your following the law and may it be his will that each and every single one of us will take these words to heart to follow the holy torah to respect it to honor it to live by it and when the time comes and we are tested to pass it with flying colors 
Thank you again for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of you with a lot of success in your Torah learning, a lot of success in your lives and honoring Hashem and serving Hashem and everything else that comes with it. And Bezot Hashem, we will see each other and learn again together later on this week in our different series of Jewish intimacy and also the Stump the Rabbi series. Thanks again for learning with me and we'll speak to each other soon. Kol Tuf.